Uh, it's, it's interesting that Jeff used the analogy of drinking from a fire hose because as I thought about our text this evening, I thought, oh my, and it's Sunday evening, and it's been a restful day, but it's warm outside. It's not so warm inside, so I hope you'll stay awake. This is a, a rich text, obviously, as you know, a text that uh, Christians have not always fully seen eye to eye on over the years, um, but a text that I believe has... Tr- a tremendous message of encouragement for us in view of the calling of the church to make disciples of all the nations on the face of the earth, in view of, as we saw this morning, that unique authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, that surprising triumph that he won on the cross and his worthiness to be worshipped. So please turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. In the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1040, 1040, and let me read this text from God's Word, uh, reminding you as we start that at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, God issues a promise of blessing. Uh, The picture in Revelation 1-3 is the way that the early church would have encountered any part of the New Testament scriptures, and that is one reader and many listeners. Uh, We're privileged to not only be able to hear, but you can see the page uh, in front of you. But in the early church, they could receive a blessing, the reader, the hearers, as we take it to heart and keep the words that are contained in this prophecy. So we want to go to this text expecting that the Holy Spirit who breathed out these words through the Apostle John will also bring us a blessing as we hear and heed them. So hear now God's word, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, For the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night.
forever and ever. This is God's word. Let us ask him to write its message on our hearts. Father, we bow before you with this portion of your word fresh in our minds, in our ears, and we ask you to send your spirit among us to be our teacher this evening. We are very much aware of the fact that brothers and sisters before us for many generations have puzzled and sometimes argued and even today argue over this passage. But we pray that you will give us ears to hear the message that you have revealed in the powerful imagery of these visions that you've given to John and that you'll help us to see its bearing on the calling of your people to bear witness to the nations throughout the world, in our time, in our place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you probably know, this is the one and only passage in the Bible that gives the millennium its name. Millennium is a Latin word that means thousand years, and this is the text that talks about a period that is presented here as a thousand years. And... uh, If you're anything like me and have been around the church for a while and uh, size this group, I imagine there's some of us who represent various viewpoints about what this age called here a thousand years is about, whether it's in fact, literally, a thousand, three hundred and sixty-five day years, and what life is like in this period called the millennium. Some of you may be premillennialist. That's uh, the church in which I was raised, was premillennialist. Uh, which meant we expect that Jesus would bodily return before this thousand years, and we expected that when he did, things would be really not quite perfect, but very, very good for a very, very long time. But there would be, as we saw here, a bit of a rebellion at the end, and then the new heavens and the new earth. So that's where I started as a young Christian. And then I flirted for a while with a post-millennial view, at least one variety of it, thinking that the thousand years was to be an era before Jesus came back, but an era in which really the gospel would go forward with such culture-transforming power that virtually everything would be really not quite perfect, but really, really good. And then a falling away and then come back. I was going to leave you to guess what bin I now fall in, the amillennial view, but your pastor spilled the beans this morning. So wherever you are tonight, I've been there. Okay, And when I came to teach at Westminster Seminary, California, in the New Testament department, and the senior member of the department said, you can choose any New Testament course you wish to choose, very gracious thing for the man who had more experience than I, he said, as long as you take our course that teaches the book of Revelation. And I said, yes, sir. Um, Realizing that that course also had the general epistles in it, so I spent the first few years teaching a lot on Hebrews and Lo and behold, running out of time, I just didn't have time to talk about Revelation. That was the way my professor at Westminster Philly had handled it before as well. But finally I began to realize I needed to study this book. And so I came back to it with fear and trepidation and came to this chapter with some fear. But became more and more convinced as I looked at it in the context of the book of Revelation and in the context of some other key passages in the New Testament, not only that this vision is understandable in general, but that it's good for us. 
that it is part of that portion, it's part of that whole book that comes under that promise of blessing that I mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Now, to get the blessing, we need to hear. Uh, Blessing doesn't sort of bypass our minds and sort of warm our hearts without our thinking about it. So you're going to have to work with me tonight, even though it is at the end of a long and warm and restful Lord's Day. Stay tuned here. I will try to uh, ratchet back the volume on the fire hose, but I want to show you what a hopeful message for missions this text has. Now, to do that, I need to mention three things about the book of Revelation generally. Uh, This is your mini Revelation course all this evening. If you want the longer notes, Jeff has them somewhere, maybe. Um, Paradox, numbers, and recapitulation. I'm going to rephrase that one in a minute. But paradox. Things are not always what they seem. Sometimes the visions of Revelation kind of mess with our minds in that the things that we would expect them to mean almost are the opposite of what they mean. We saw that this morning. We were led to expect a conquering lion and we saw a lamb who was slain. And yet they really are the same person and in fact talking about the same event. The lion's conquest, his victory, was the lambs being slain on the cross. It's a paradox. The cross is weakness to the world, but it's the power of God for salvation, as Paul would say. So paradox, keep that one in mind. Numbers. Numbers count in the book of Revelation. It's just that they don't always count the way we're often used to using numbers to count. Um, We saw that this morning as well. I sort of went by it quickly, but you perhaps noticed that when John saw the Lamb, he saw that the Lamb had seven eyes, which John said are the seven spirits of God. Now when John says the seven spirits of God are sent off into all the earth, he's not saying, by the way, if you believe the Apostle Paul when he said there is one spirit, you were wrong, there are actually seven. He's not saying that. He's using the number seven to symbolize the complete presence of the Holy Spirit and his complete knowledge of everything that happens everywhere in the world all the time. So seven is used symbolically. Numbers like 12 are used symbolically. Numbers like 1,000 are used symbolically. Multiples of 12 and 1,000, like 144,000, are used symbolically. The new Jerusalem that John will see soon after this vision is is 12,000 stadia wide, high, and long which if you will to multiply it out, as some of our Bibles do in the footnotes, come out to 1,300, 1,400 miles, a cube. But John says, is not really saying multiply it out and try to get your tape measure out and figure out how big the New Jerusalem is going to be. Those numbers are symbolic of the people of God and the vast expanse of the people of God. So numbers count, but not necessarily, necessarily in terms of physical counting calculation. Third one, reduplication. Let me put it another way that's easier, I think, for me. Reduplication sounds very complicated. Video replay. Video replay. If you watch sporting events on TV, you know video replay. Uh, You know that even if you blinked or were at the refrigerator during the crucial touchdown, 
You really don't have to worry about it because you're going to see that touchdown three or four more times in the next three or four minutes, right? See it from the camera that focuses on the quarterback, the camera that focuses on the tight end, the camera that focuses on the weakness in the defensive line, three or four times. The fact that you see it three or four times does not mean that your team gets 18 or 24 points for that touchdown. (laughs) It's one touchdown, but from several different angles. And that's what is going on often in the book of Revelation, which means that you can't always assume that the order in which John saw things is the order in which those events that he saw symbolized are actually going to appear in history. Tuck that one away. Now, into Revelation 20. Four questions, quickly. What events begins the thousand-year period? What conditions characterize the thousand-year period? What's going on during that period, as this text shows us? What event ends the thousand-year period? And then finally, what does all this have to say to us and world missions? Okay, what event begins the thousand years? Well, it begins, as we see here in the first few verses, with a great angel seizing the dragon, the ancient serpent, putting a chain on the dragon, binding him, throwing him into the pit, shutting and locking it over the dragon. Easy. But remember now, he's also called Satan and the devil. He is not literally a dragon, a mythical reptilian figure, nor is he literally a real-life serpent. The chain is symbolic. The pit is symbolic. It's symbolic of something. It's symbolic of the fact that Satan has been harnessed, has been chained, has been prevented from doing what Satan wants to do. In fact, we're told what he would like to continue to do and cannot during this thousand-year period. He is chained, locked away, that he might not deceive the nations, the Gentiles, any longer. And after the thousand years, verses two and follow, uh, verses seven and following, we see that he is released, and he deceives the nations, and he gathers this huge army against the camp of the saints in the beloved city. So what he cannot do is deceive the nations during this period of time that John sees as a thousand years. Now, let me suggest to you this is a kind of video replay of the same events that John saw at the very center of the book of Revelation. Turn with me back just a few pages to Revelation 12. Actually, Revelation 12 itself is a great example of video replay because it shows a battle twice over and the outcome of the battle twice over. 1 through 12, we see camera angle 1 in in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 12. And then in 7 to the end of the chapter, camera angle number 2. And what we see in Revelation 12 is, first of all, a battle. Now, if you blink, you miss it. Because what you see at the beginning of Revelation 12 is that a woman who is symbolized in images that show that she is the covenant people of God, especially old covenant Israel, but there's even an echo of the promise all the way back to Genesis 3, The seed of the woman will come to crush the serpent's head. It's it's all of that imagery packed in. 
And she's about to give birth. And she's about to give birth to the Messiah. And the way her child is described in these early verses, he is the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2. He's the promised anointed one. So she's about to give birth to the Messiah, and the dragon is ready to destroy Messiah the instant he's born. Here's where if you blink, you miss it. Her child is born, and he's caught up to heaven to the right hand of God. Wow, that was quick. There's some detail in there, like Jesus' birth, Herod's attempt to blot him out then, Jesus growing up, temptation, miracles, plot, death, resurrection, finally ascension. John isn't shown all of that. It's, It's really as though the dragon had his one opportunity and he utterly failed. And so what the dragon does at that point is he tries to persecute and destroy the woman who gave birth. He tries to destroy the covenant people of God. That's camera angle one. Camera angle two comes from a different angle, and from that angle, same battle takes place, but now we see it from a different way. Satan, the accuser, is thrown out of heaven. He can no longer accuse the saints. And that's the important thing that we need to see in that second scene in chapter 12, verses 7 and following. You see it especially in verses 10 and 11. After he's cast down, He's been described in the very terms that we hear him described in chapter 20, in verse 9. The ancient serpent, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. He's been described, and now what has happened to him? Verse 10, a loud voice in heaven says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Satan has been a prosecuting attorney against God's sinful people. He had a case against us. Maybe he didn't have the case against Job that he thought he did, that Job was only serving God for the the goodies that God gave him. Job clung to faith, though he didn't understand God's ways. He clung to faith. He wasn't just in it for the perks. But certainly in the prophecy of Zechariah, when the high priest Joshua is shown in a vision to be covered with filthy garments, the one who was supposed to be pure, covered with filthy garments in the presence of God, and Satan at his elbow accusing him, And suddenly God comes to the high priest Joshua's defense. And he clothes the high priest Joshua with clean clothes and he rebukes Satan. That's what's going on here. And then God says, and this is a preview of the day when my servant the branch will come. The battle is the incarnation, obedient life, sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that not only affected the fact that Satan could not destroy God's Messiah, but it also affected the fact that Satan was now had no reason that he could possibly accuse those who trust in Jesus. Because, as the heavenly voice says, we've conquered by the blood of the Lamb. 
The aftermath is that Satan, the dragon, still tries to kill the church. He knows his time is short, we read in this chapter 12. He knows his days are numbered. And yet he still vents his rage against the church. And martyrs still die. And believers still suffer. But he cannot ultimately destroy the church also, as well. So that's, in a sense, the previews of Revelation 20. And we see that that time when Satan was decisively defeated, defeated, but not utterly destroyed, began with the first coming of Christ and his redemptive work. We turn to Revelation 20 and we ask, could that be what's going on at the beginning of the thousand years? The binding of Satan being the fact that now he is not utterly destroyed, but decisively defeated, frustrated, hemmed in, on a short lease, thwarted. Well, I think what Revelation shows us about what is going on in that thousand-year period confirms that. So let's ask the question then, secondly, what characterizes the thousand years as John sees them here? Everybody who reads the book of Revelation needs to look elsewhere in Scripture to try to figure out how it connects with other parts of Scripture. What I think is perhaps the most helpful parallel or set of parallels is what Jesus and his apostles say have happened to Satan as a result of Jesus' first coming. Jesus, for example, says in Matthew chapter 12, when he's accused of casting out demons because he's in league with Beelzebul, the power, the the lord of the demons, Jesus says that's absurd. Satan doesn't want to cast himself out. But if there is someone stronger who comes in and binds the strong man, then that stronger invader can take the strong man's property. What's he saying? He says, I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God. I'm coming with a stronger power then Satan can, can manage to grip his, his uh, captives with. I've bound the strong man, and therefore I'm setting free those who have been his slaves. And if you think about what John tells us here in Revelation about what Satan would love to do and can no longer do, namely deceive the nations, deceive the Gentile nations, well, that's exactly what the apostles say is going on now because of the fact that Jesus has come, lived, died, been raised from the dead and poured out the Holy Spirit. Paul says to the pagans in Lystra, we are bringing you good news about the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way, although he continued to bear witness to who he is as creator through his faithful providence in sending rains and fruitful seasons. But in the past, God, in a sense, let the nations outside of Israel live in a lot of darkness. A couple chapters later, when Paul is in Athens and he's preaching to the philosophers there, he says, in the past, God overlooked your idolatrous ignorance. Didn't excuse it, obviously, but he wasn't going after them in the way he is now. But Paul says, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent. 
having raised Jesus from the dead. And that's why Paul in his letters can talk about that time before Jesus came and what has happened now in terms of how it impacts us who are Gentile believers. My grandparents came from Sweden, uh, and so I don't think I have any Abrahamic blood in my DNA anywhere. Um, I was reminded years ago that once upon a time, Swedes drank toasts to celebrate their victories from the skulls of their defeated enemies. That's a humbling thought. That's my family tree, folk. <laughs> Woo! But I have another family tree. I am a child of Abraham by faith. Because God didn't leave the Swedes in darkness forever. And Christ's coming meant that the gospel was going to eventually reach Sweden as well. That the light was going to go out. That Satan could not keep that nation, or indeed any nation, in his deception. He's bound. Now Revelation 12 reminds us that though he's bound, because he knows his days are numbered, and he's angry, he still lashes out at the church. There are still martyrs. And in fact, Revelation 20 shows us that. There are martyrs who have been beheaded for the name of Jesus, even in the first century. So it's not as though he's inactive in every way, but that one thing he wants to do to keep the nations deceived in total darkness, he cannot do because Christ has won the battle. Christ is on the throne. He's poured out the Spirit and the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. You see why I see this as a missions text? What encouragement we have through all the opposition, for all the frustration, for all the difficulty, for all of the challenges that, for example, violence in Mexico poses for the ministry that the Lambs are involved with and their many, many colleagues are involved with right now. For what's going on among Christians in Libya, haven't heard anything about that in the news, I bet, or what's going on among Christians in Egypt or other places where there's been great turmoil, For all of that, Satan cannot do what he wants to do, which is keep the nations deceived. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. That's what's going on in the thousand-year period that began with the first coming of Christ. And, of course, the other thing that's going on, as John shows us here in verses 4 through 6, is that the martyrs are living. Here's where paradox comes in. I saw thrones... That's John's reminder of the vision that I mentioned this morning in Daniel 7 when Daniel sees the Ancient of Days surrounded by thrones and the Son of Man coming to receive his eternal kingdom. John says, I saw thrones, and those who were seated on the thrones had authority to judge. And who are they? Well, John sees who they are. The souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus For the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast, they came to life and reigned with Christ for the thousand years. The saints, especially the martyrs, who were faithful to the death, as God called them to be, are reigning with Christ in heaven. Just as Jesus is the Lamb who was slain and yet lives, so these souls of those whose lives have been taken from their bodies for the time being, in that first resurrection, ironically, paradoxically, the death of their bodies is the first resurrection, their first taste of sharing in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so they are ruling and reigning with Christ in heaven. How does that work its way out on earth? Well, they've been faithful in bearing testimony to Christ. That's what John heard in Revelation 12. The saints have conquered the dragon by the word of the Lamb and the word of their by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony because they did not love their lives even to the death. They were willing to go to death to be faithful to the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, the testimony about Jesus, and they participate in the Lamb's victory. Quickly, what ends the thousand years? Verse 7, Satan is released. Released for a short time. And this is John's realistic warning to churches and Christians in the first century and the 21st to say, even now, though Satan may be bound so he can't deceive the nations, there will be an intense time of suffering just before the Lord Jesus returns. I'm not going to call dates. One of the few eschatological passages I think we have to take really, really literally is no one knows. That's my life verse on eschatology. No one knows, right, in terms of dates. We know it's coming, but we don't know when. But John does say there will be an intensification at the the end of the thousand years, just for a little while, just before the return of Christ. And what he shows us in verses 7 through 10 is a kind of a compressed view of the battle that he had shown us in chapter 19. One of the reasons that I was a pre-mill for so long was that I assumed that because John saw a battle at Armageddon at the end of 19, and then he saw a thousand years and 20, that those two had to be in that order chronologically, historically. But then I began to notice that in these latter chapters of Revelation, there's this constant refrain about the gathering of the nations for the battle. Chapter 16, the beasts and the dragon gather the kings of the nations for the battle of the great day of God. Chapter 19, we see them gathered for the battle. Chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, we see them gathered for the battle. And I thought, I wonder if John's trying to tell us that these are different camera angles on the same battle. And to remind us that this battle is going to come after a really long period when Satan's desire to keep the nations in darkness has been thwarted, frustrated, and restrained. I believe that's why John shows us that this battle ultimately will happen after this long period in which Satan has been inhibited. And his point is simply this. Just brace yourself for the long haul. The Lord will not return until the last battle has come upon the church, and the last battle will not happen until Satan is released, and that's not going to happen until God has given a long period in which the gospel can go out to free the nations from Satan's deception. And when it happens, Satan will only be loose for a little while, and our Lord will come to our rescue. Okay, so what does all this say to us in missions? Well, I draw several conclusions from this. First of all, stop whining. You know, it's easy for us to judge conditions in the world by what we see around us immediately. 
It's easy for us to think, you know, things are going from bad to worse because if we think back to 50 years ago, some of you can't think back that far, but some of us can, and we think back to where the laws of our nation were then and where they are now, or where the media and entertainment was then and where it is now, uh, that's a very little kind of window on which to judge the grand scope of history. And what John is saying is things had been worse before. There were times before Jesus came when Satan had free reign among the nations, almost free reign. The number of believers from outside Israel in the Old Testament, you think of them, there are not many. Uh, There are some, a foretaste of what's happening now, but only a foretaste. But now is the time when the gospel's going out. And John says, okay, I need to tell you, The vision shows that it's going to be worse immediately before the end, significantly worse. But if we are living in that thousand years now, we can rejoice that even though we don't always see it, the gospel is going out in wonderful ways. So we should throw ourselves into gospel mission. We should take seriously the reality that Christ's death, the blood of the Lamb, And the Spirit of God sending out the testimony of the gospel through the messengers that Jesus sends out really is God's way of setting the nations free from Satan's deception. God is pushing back the darkness that has engulfed the nations. Why did Jesus start his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles? Matthew tells us it was to keep the promise of God in Isaiah, people who had been sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus began his ministry up north because there were a lot of Gentiles in Galilee by that point. A lot of people with pagan backgrounds. No Swedes to my knowledge, but just as bad almost. And Jesus began there, Matthew shows us, because he's bringing light into places that had been previously dominated by satanic darkness. So don't whine. Throw yourself into gospel mission. And remember to gauge victory by God's definition, not by surface appearances. It wouldn't look to the observing eye as if people beheaded because they believed Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. It wouldn't look as though they were victors, as though they were conquerors, as though they had triumph. But reality is they are the triumphing ones. They are the conquering ones. Are there setbacks in the church's global mission? Of course there are. Countries become closed, and then we don't call them closed after a while, we call them creative access countries, right? Because they're not really closed if God is sovereign. They're just different ways to get in, perhaps. Evangelists are killed. Their children fall ill and they need to come to places where they can find good medical care. New believers sometimes seem to relapse into old ways of life. Colleagues in ministry argue, and teams are broken up. All that happened. (laughs) But the visions of Revelation show us that in our time and place, the gospel is advancing, whether we see all of its fruit or not. The day is coming when we will. The day is coming when we will not only see, but be part of that innumerable, international choir from all the nations that we heard this morning in Revelation 7. 
And sometimes in the midst of what looks to the outward eye as darkness, the light of the gospel shines brightest. Against that dark backdrop, I would imagine some of you have discovered and benefited from that collection of Puritan prayers that Arthur Bennett put together some years ago, published by Banner of Truth, The Valley of Vision. I've gone all the way through that, and I'm starting again, so I came back to the opening prayer that Bennett wrote to preface the rest of the collection. And he uses the picture of being in a really, really deep well, a really deep place. And in that really deep well, even in broad daylight when you look up, because no sunlight can get in there, you see the stars. And that, I think, is a great picture for how John is calling a suffering church to see the starlight of Christ. Bennett writes, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me, to learn, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. Think of those martyrs ruling with Jesus. That to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. So let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. It's a paradox. Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, Because I'm not depending on my strength. But I'm looking to the one who said to me, my strength is made perfect in weakness. So we need to have scripture recalibrate our whole expectation about what the global mission of the church is like. Expecting the harvest and expecting the suffering. And anticipating that Christ will work through our weakness and our missionaries' weakness and the setbacks and ultimately bring His chosen ones, everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, everyone, to glory by the grace proclaimed to us in the gospel of his cross. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will write these words on our hearts. This is a huge message. I know I haven't done it justice, but I pray that the big picture has come through to our hearts this evening. And we can rejoice that Jesus has come, silenced the accuser, chained the dragon, and set the gospel free to run with its light, bringing light where there's been darkness before. And that he will continue to do so until that time that you, Father, have set. We anticipate, we long for, we thirst for, the coming of Christ. But at the same time, we know that you have set the perfect time when not one of your chosen ones will have been left outside, but everyone will have been called by the gospel into the family of God by faith in Jesus 
And so, Father, you set the time. You have, we know, and we are glad for it. Eagerly we wait, but we wait with the strength that your grace gives that we might persevere with hope. And we pray that you will send forth the gospel to the ends of the earth through us and bring in your harvest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.